Alright, CNFers, it's the end of the month, and that means one thing. Will your rent check bounce? No, wait up. Looking over at my producer, and she's saying that's the wrong thing. It, uh, what is it? Thank you. Thank you for this. Uh, oh, it means that we celebrate the Atavis Magazine's monthly blockbuster feature. That's right. This one features the Canadian writer Lindsay Jones in her deep dive into the cottage hospital industry in Newfoundland and how the lives of families and individuals got turned upside down. What is family? Is family decided by only blood? The story of place and when we can't really extend our wings and fly beyond the confines of our home offices and the like, it feels good to be taken somewhere else. Hey, this is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. Let's riff. Okay, this is the third rodeo celebrating an atavist story and an atavist writer. Previous episodes in this vein are with Scott Eden and Phil Hode. Go check them out. If you subscribe to the show, you dig into the vast archives of interviews with long-form journos like Susan Orlean, David Grant, Ted Conover, Patrick Radden Keith, Mary Pallon, Louisa Thomas, Bronwyn Dickey, and wouldn't you know, Sayward Darby. And speaking of Sayward, she's the point guard for this piece and in this bread and butter section of the show. Sayward gives you a bit of a tease to Lindsay's piece, how it came together, and how to trampoline moments, how to put trampoline moments into a piece to sustain a reader's attention for the duration of a long story. So let's do this. Batting lead off is Sayward Darby, editor-in-chief of The Atavist Magazine. Uh, Lindsay's work that um, that that excites you. Yeah, so periodically at the Atavist, I would say like once or twice a year, I do a push where I mean I'm, we always accept pitches, right? But then once or twice a year, I'll just come up with a list of names of writers whose work I've recently read and really enjoyed, uh, and I'll reach out and say. I love what you do. And if you ever have something that you think would be a fit for the Atavist, let me know. And, you know, some some people have stuff. Some people don't have stuff. Some people are, you know, unavailable for the foreseeable future. And in Lindsay's case, you know, one of the things I really loved about her work was that we don't have a, you know, all of our stories, uh, or I shouldn't say all of our stories, the vast majority of our stories are based in, in the United States, um, or at least, you know, have like a U.S., focus in some way. And I loved how she brought to life these kind of remote rural parts of Canada um, in a way that made place really feel like a character. And so the work of hers that I'd read, let's see, in The Walrus, um, Globe and Mail, a couple of other places, um, she just had such dedication to place. And it was a place that I felt like in The Atavist, we hadn't we hadn't had a story like that in a while, um, or on on my watch certainly we hadn't. And so, uh, so I was excited when she came back with this incredible story about Newfoundland, a place I've never been, but now I very much would like to go. You know, when coronavirus allows, because I really think that she does a masterful job of conveying what the place is like, but then also making the place a character in this story because it really is like it. And there's a line in the story even where. 
where she says, you know, in some ways, this story couldn't have happened anywhere but Newfoundland um, because of the peculiarities of place. So, yeah, so that that was that was, you know, the main reason I reached out. And then I thought, too, you know, she was just a beautiful writer and uh, very unshowy um, and just told good stories with a lot of care. uh, And that's always appealing to me. I like that you say unshowy because that is it's one of I think a lot of people and I know I've been victim of this you know when you maybe you come across writers that are just it's just like fire and pyrotechnics on the page you're like man I want to do that and then (laughs) you try to do it and it just it falls flat and it's like you know what I am trying to, to belabor a cliche like square peg round hole what I should really be doing is surrendering to story, getting out of the way, telling it as straight as possible, you know, not trying to be David Foster Wallace or <laughs> in, in, you in, name your pyrotechnic writer. It's uh, so being unshowy is actually sometimes the best way to to be the most artistic uh, version of yourself by just surrendering to what is surrendering to your reporting, your research and getting out of the way of the story. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like in this case, you know, this story, and I don't want to give too much away, but there's some real surprises in it. Um, Like, yes, and I think it becomes abundantly clear early on that it is about two people who are switched at birth and discovered it, you know, many, many decades later in a very, like, kind of shockingly mundane way, (laughs) frankly. Um, And but then, you know, the, the story really takes some turns. And I think it took some turns for uh, Lindsay as a writer while she was working on it. Um, and I know when she and I were talking initially about structure, um, we were like, okay, how do we sprinkle these surprises? And they're not necessarily gasp worthy surprises, but they are things that add like new layers of intrigue and new questions, uh, into the story. And it was like, okay, how do we space those out in the story such that, you know, they, they feel, like they're really going to give the reader the the push to move on to the next section where it's like, oh, wow, I didn't really see that coming. Where's this going to go now? Um, and so, you know, we we talked structurally about about how to do that, how not to give everything away up front, um, but rather just let the story unfold. Uh, and I think, again, she did a really, really lovely job and her writing. I mean, I think her descriptions are both spare but also incredibly evocative, which, you know, to me is is an enormous feat uh, when somebody doesn't feel the need to include 10 adjectives. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, so, uh, so yeah, I, I hear you about, you know, pyrotechnics. And sometimes pyrotechnics are great fun, you know, doing something a little wild with your style and, and whatnot. But I feel like with Atavis stories, especially, you know, I'm always coming from a place as an editor with with the writers we work with of thinking story and structure first and then you know style they can bring style however however they like but really it's it's those building blocks that matter the most for us and when people are i I think maybe maybe a lot of a lot of people they they think that they that they can write three five eight ten thousand word twelve thousand word stories uh features and they think that it's, you know, it, it's within reach, but then you start thinking about it and it's really, it's very, very hard to do. It takes a lot of heft and reporting and research and organization. So what is the challenge that you find uh, for you as an editor and maybe for people whose stories fall flat to try to sustain the kind of momentum it takes 
to write a story in the five digit word ballpark? Yeah. Oh, I mean, gosh, it's such a good question and such a big question. But, you know, the way I I'm actually not an outliner. So like when I write personally, I, I very rarely outline. But what I do is I talk to myself or I write on post-it notes <laughs> um, mm-hmm. or index cards or whatever. I think about the beats of a story. So I think about what are kind of the key beats that I that I want to hit or that I, you know, the writer wants to hit and I'm trying to help them do that. Um, and then it's about distributing those beats because you, again, like in a more traditional feature, you often have a lot of the beats up front because you're giving lots of context. There's the nut graph, you know, all these different things. And then the rest of the story, because you're usually only writing up to like 5,000 words or so is, or obviously less, um, in many cases, you're just kind of fleshing out what you've said up front. And with Atavis stories, when you're talking or any story that creeps, yeah, into the, (laughs) into five digit land, you know, you want to think about how to space out key moments and developments, and in some cases, themes, because when you get to those beats, it's almost like hitting like a trampoline at various points in the story to keep going. And so I think that that for me, when I'm talking to writers, and we're thinking about structure, it's not that I need a detailed outline, you know, in this paragraph, or in this section, I will do XYZ. It's more, okay, what is the story we want to tell? What are the key beats? And how do we space them out? How do we situate them? And then obviously, there's a lot of filling in that happens from a scene standpoint, from a dialogue standpoint. Uh, but really, you know, those those beats are, I guess, now I have this trampoline image in my head, which I've never actually said or thought of before. It's like in like a video game, right? Where like you bounce on something and it like pushes you farther than your little character would otherwise be moving um, if they were just, you know, hustling along. That for me is what is so helpful when you're thinking about stories of this length. Um, because you can get really bogged down in the details and you can worry you know, oh, well, I, you know, I feel like I need to get all of the best stuff up front. And, uh, and I always tell people, no, like, save good stuff, save good stuff for the middle, save good stuff for the end. And we have very discerning readers, people who want to read these stories all the way to the end, like, that's the point of an out of a story. And so how do you space out the material such that the reader by the time they get to the end feels like it was really worth it? Um, You know, they aren't losing steam by the time they get there. I guess lastly, as we sort of, uh, you know, trampoline into into the conversation <laughs> with, with, with Lindsay, you know, what is, uh, you know, when, when you, when you got the final product and you put the final seal on it and, uh, hit publish on, on this, you know, what, what is it about it that just really excites you about it and is, uh, you're, you're excited to put into the hands of the reader? I, I love every story we publish. Um, I, you know, love all of my children equally, as as they say. Um, yeah. But something about Lindsay's story just has really stuck with me personally, and I think because it is at once an incredibly intimate story about this place that doesn't have a lot of people. Um, you know, these families that are very tight knit, these communities where you know everybody knows everybody's name. And yet at the same time, what happens in the story feels enormous because it is enormous from an emotional standpoint. Um, And I think it's just, it has this really special mix of themes that I think are very universal. And even if you've never been to Newfoundland, even if, you know, you have no interest in going to Newfoundland, like this story, I think 
I don't know, it just kind of gets inside your heart in a way that not every story does. Um, it's, it's about family. It's about love. It's about, you know, what is family? Like, does family have to be defined by blood? Can it be defined by choice? Um, or in this case, you know, defined by error, frankly. And and I, I hope that readers take away from it the the same feeling feeling both like warm and fuzzy because it is kind of that sort of story and it is about family and about love but then at the same time you know there's a good bit of shock and surprise and so I hope that I hope that readers come away feeling the way I did when Lindsay first told me the story and then absolutely you know when it was there on the page and I was able to read it. Fantastic. Well, always a pleasure speaking to you, Sayward. And uh, so now everyone she just needs to stay tuned for my conversation with Lindsay Jones. So thanks for thanks for coming by again, Sayward. Thank you so much for having me and for having Lindsay. Now, what are the tools that you're bringing with yourself? Um my iPhone. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm big into taking tons of pictures um, of everything because I, I always inevitably go back and ask a million questions about, you know, what's the color of your front door and just like what, you know, what is your dog's name? And so uh, I take a ton of photos. And so I have my iPhone. I bring a tape recorder, pens, a notebook. It's not, you know, some granola bars, mm-hmm. water. That's about it. I mean, I for this, I was driving all around Oakport, Newfoundland for this story. Um, I crossed some serious terrain in, you know, I made a mistake and rented the smallest, crappiest vehicle that was the cheapest option. <laughs> and yeah, I'm I'm driving in the middle of these torrential rainstorms um, on some dirt roads and things. And anyway, I learned my lesson. When in Newfoundland, always rent um, a four by four. Yeah, the um the the notebooks I love to use, they're a little small, but they're real sturdy and heavy duty. It's the Field Notes heavy duty thing. It's got a really hard chipboard for the front oh, yeah. and the back. So it's almost like it's a, kind of a built-in clipboard, if you will. It's really sturdy. It fits in your back pocket, inside pocket, like any little pocket. And that's kind of like the analog thing. And then I have an old iPhone 5C that I just use as my... A voice recorder if I'm in a an environment that's conducive to using the voice recorder so it's um I I love just ha- like hearing what this the reporter Swiss army knife is like for all, all different reporters how they go about you know getting all that information so they can synthesize it into something like the amazing piece you wrote for Atavist well thanks I don't I, I feel like I I have too many notebooks going at all times and I, I just really use whatever's on hand. I don't, yeah. I don't really have like your field notes, uh, but I'm going to look that up and maybe, you know, I need the the hardback. Um, a lot of times like I'm outside when I'm reporting and um, I, I don't even take notes. I just take a lot of pictures and I listen and, yeah. or I put my recorder on and then that's painful later to have to go through and, you know, pick out some of the dialogue. When you're asking those detailed questions, those things that to us light us up, like the color of the door, the name of the dog, when you're talking to someone, oftentimes 
they're going to be like, why the hell do you even want to know that? And, uh, you know, we're details people. Those are the things that really reveal things to us as writers and journalists. So, uh, you know, how do you, how have you gotten comfortable asking those often mundane questions to get the details in the face of someone who's like, why do you care about this? <laughs> so usually I warn people and say, I'm, I'm going to follow up probably a hundred times and ask you a lot of really personal questions. Mm -hmm. And I, I make fun of that process a little bit to them. And, um, and so I think they're warmed up for it, you know, when the, the texts come into their iPhone or into their phone, and I'm asking all those um, details of their lives that they're not caught off guard. And um, yeah, I just try to be gentle about it too, especially where some of the questions are a little more sensitive. Um, yeah, sometimes I text, sometimes I call. It really depends on what I'm asking. Right. And do you have any uh, anxiety around the, you know, the phone and cold calling and doing that kind of, uh, you know, reporting and research, especially when you're reaching out for the first time? Um, you know, I, one thing that I've learned early on is that making a ton of phone calls is what makes you a good reporter and not to say I'm a great or good reporter, but um, hopefully I'm okay. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, you know, that is like base level, you know, you have to have that ability. And, um, so yeah, I mean, it just comes with, I, I feel like it just comes with the job to just be comfortable cold calling people. And I bumble my way through it. And I, and maybe that's why people talk to me because I come across as, um, you know, like we need, people probably think we need to help this woman. She, <laughs> <laughs> um, she can't get across what she's asking, but, um, I, like I made myself for this story particularly because it was involved so much of trying to track people down, former employees and and women who had given birth at at the cottage hospital. I made myself uh, make three cold calls a day. Maybe that doesn't sound like very much, but um, yeah, that that worked for me. And then I give myself a little reward after, and like a nice coffee or like a chocolate. <laughs> Ooh, I love that. I like so, this. Yeah. So I, I, I realize it's tough to do to make those calls. Um, but you, you really, I don't know if it's just Newfoundland or if it's just like, you know, the lost art of cold calling, but I, I hit the jackpot a, quite a few times with cold calling. You know, I just, somebody gives me a name of somebody else. And then I look up, you know, on someone would look up names for me. The people in Newfoundland are so nice. They'll look up names in the phone book, which is, you know, an archaic tool nowadays, you know, where people live and what their name is, is so important in Newfoundland and still so resonant that it, it really helped me find people. And so people that did, had never met me before, I'd cold call them and it'd be the wrong number, but they'd look up numbers for me in their old phone book from 1999. And, and then I, you know, somehow find somebody through that connection and they tell me some stories. And it, so it, we really need to be getting on the phone more, I think, than mm -hmm. 
Um, it, and also during COVID, you know, that's how you have to do a lot of your reporting these days. So, Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely a, a, it's a muscle that you have to exercise and build and get into shape and learn how to, like you were saying, kind of bumble through. I'm the same way. I'm just kind of marbles in the mouth, cotton mouth, just stumbling <laughs> through the conversation. They're probably like, just shut up. I can tell you want some information. Just ask me the damn question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think they're trying to put me out of my misery by, uh, and that's that. That helps me get places. I'll give you anything you want. Um, <laughs> nice. So, so tell me how you arrived at this story. Well, I heard about this story uh, on CBC, which is our our public broadcaster here in Canada. So I, I heard about this, and I was really intrigued by it, and. Uh, and then, you know, I think I put it on the back burner for a while. And I I have this this great friend. She's an amazing feature writer. And she and I talk about structure all the time. And she's a real structure nerd. And um, I think I sent her this story. And I was like, oh, wouldn't it be amazing to, you know, look at these two men's stories and, and um, think about like a twinning narrative in the way of telling it. And, and so... I first thought about it in terms of, you know, try uh, the potential of storytelling there. And I also, CBC is great. Um, I didn't feel like the story had been fully explored, these two men's um, experiences and what they'd gone through. And I was left wanting more. I really wanted to know more about their lives. And just the, I was so intrigued by cottage hospitals as well and what those were like and what the type of people that worked there. And so I, I told my friend who doesn't live in the, on this side of Canada, you should do this story. And she's like, no, you should. And then um, sure enough, I've been working on this, um, this unsolved murder uh, story for two and a half or three years. And that piece had just finally come out and I was looking for something else to sink my teeth into. And I got a form email um, from Sayward Darby, the editor of this piece that she probably sent out to thousands of people. <laughs> and it said, Hey, I love your writing. And you know, that she's looking for stories. And, and I thought, Oh my goodness, that maybe this is the story. And um, it took me some time to pre-report it and get um, people on side willing to trust me and talk to me and share their stories. And and that's how it came together. I love that you brought up, uh, you know, the fact that there was a, an element of a, a pre-reporting phase of the 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 bulk of the the what would ultimately become the reporting phase. So what did the what what was the pre-reporting slash discovery phase of this of this project like for you? I felt like I really came across something interesting when I um I I was trying to figure out, you know, more about the cottage hospitals in Newfoundland. And I started to look into that and I realized, oh, there's this book written about them. But I couldn't get the book and it wasn't in a library where I live in this, in this province of Nova Scotia where I live, but it did exist at a library in Newfoundland. And so I looked up on the internet, the author's name and phone number on Canada 411. And <laughs> I happened to get him on the first try and he had a copy of the book and he mailed it to me. 
And then we had a big conversation. And so before I ever got the book, he and I talked on the phone one night for a couple of hours. And he told me about this head nurse at the hospital and that her name was Tiger. And that he told me this anecdote that he'd heard while he was researching the book uh, about her, I don't want to give away too much of the story, but about um, identity bands and her relaxing the protocol around when they're put on. And I just told you too much of the story, didn't I? Um, <laughs> I have a feeling, well, it's weird. I don't know when people, I don't know if people read the story and then and then listen to the interview or the, listen to the story and then and I'll listen to the interview and then read the story. So I, I, my feeling is people will read the story and then want to hear you talk about it. So I, I think if I put a little spoiler alert at the start of this, <laughs> okay. then people will be like, okay, well, cause it's right embedded in, in the story itself. So I suspect people will read it and then want to hear what you have to say about it. And I, I can put like, yo, spoiler, spoilers in this interview, read the story first, then listen to Lindsay talk about it. Okay. <laughs> so, um, Edward Lake, the historian author of this book, told me that story. And um, I, as soon as I heard that story, I, I was like, oh my goodness, there's this, you know, th this potential central character here who um, I want to know more about. Where is this woman and what happened to her? And what did, you know, was she a good person or a bad person? And, and so, um, then I reached out back to the families again, and we had a conversation. And I asked them if there were any names on there. Um, so they had a very rudimentary, redacted copy of their birth records. And during my research for the story, we ended up getting the the full birth record. We had it um, unredacted um, or uh, the blacked out parts um, taken off. And so we could read the whole thing. And so I said to them on the phone, you know, is there a name on there? And they said, Kellanan. And, and then I, it, you know, I just put it together in my head, like, holy shit, you know, this is, there's mm -hmm. something here. There's a, you know, not that she's to blame or anything, but there's certainly, you know, something with legs here to look into deeper. Like this is, this person is, is going to be as much of a character as these two men and how um, she impacted their lives. I love the, there's an element of the story that reminds me kind of like in Harry Potter when he like dips his head into the pensive and it's like you see all these characters in the past and they're very alive and it's very, everything in the past there is informing the present as he's getting information from the deep backstory and like the, the, it's Kalanan, is that how you pronounce her, her name? Yeah. Yeah. And just like when you bring in her as like this it you know you just got a sense of this almost a, a sepia toned backstory of what you know this this is how her how she was involved in these uh, cottage hospitals and uh, and you know the relaxing of the id bands and all this and how it how it eventually informs you know your current your your primary storyline of these two two babies that were born on the same day switched you know in different families on the same island and it's just like 
it, it, it informed the present narrative of the story so well. And it was it had to me, it had this effect of dipping my head in the pensive and seeing how this thing played out in the past. Oh, good. Well, I I so wanted to step back in time and see what it was like inside these cottage hospitals um, back in the 60s. And I I still want to go back there. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, I, I'm glad that that that, it, that you feel like that worked well. I, the great thing about Newfoundland is is that so much of it is still set in the time of the 1960s, um, in a lovely way. Um, but uh, the the sense of community and um, how people care for each other and neighbors and it it's still very much. Um, back in time and yeah there's still dirt roads there and there's um people live in the communities they were born in it's a beautiful place and there's something to be said about these old fishing towns and how tightly knit they are because the you know a lot of the you know men go out to sea for however long and it's very you know a lot of people are left behind and then there's there's a lot of danger out at sea and who's coming back and who might who might not. And it, it, it really fosters a, a very sort of cohesive community, you know, around a particular industry. And I, I am, and I suspect like oil, the oil industry is taking root up there and might, might be faltering, but like these old, you know, old fishing towns have that kind of, they, they share a similar kind of uh, DNA, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's amazing being in these, um, these very small communities where the men went out to sea and basically this was told to me by one of the family members. So I I feel like I can say it, come home long enough just to get drunk and, and get pregnant. (laughs) And, um, and so that's, that, that's the regime there. That's the sort of way the calendar rolls. And yeah, so the, the women would, were, were dependent on each other. And you were dependent on your children and your large family. Everybody um, had a role to play. And yeah, they're they're petering out now. The this these small places. There's um, not a lot of families left there. But uh, it's amazing to uh, to go and visit. And and like you said, you know, you can envision what life was back in the sixties because very little has changed. And with the sensitive nature of, of, of the story where you're dealing with, you know, these, you know, know, babies that were just inadvertently switched at birth. They're basically put in, in these, like in, in milk crates, uh, carnation dried milk crates and, and uh, on ID. And they're just like, you can picture the nurses just being like, okay, the, this baby, okay. This one's for you. This one's, this one's yours. We don't know. Here it is. It's what, what's the difference? Uh, but in it, but that manifests itself oftentimes, you know, toxically down, down the road. And so how did you navigate that as a reporter with such a, such sensitive, uh, sensitive material and subject? The men are, were very open to sharing their story because they really wanted to help. They really want to know what happened and so I like to dig and get details and go back in the past and get documents. And so I promised them I would do whatever I could to find out what 
I could about what happened to them. And I feel like the story answered it almost. I don't know if we can ever really know what happened that day. Um, but I feel like we, we got there, we got close. And so they were very much open to trusting me with that story because I, I guess maybe I could help them find a piece of the puzzle of their missing lives. And so what they probably didn't sign up for was me sort of prying into their emotions as much as I did. And, you know, these are two very sort of strong Newfoundland men mm-hmm. um, who don't perhaps talk about their emotions. Um, and I guess the way that I found to to explore more what was going on in their heads was to talk to the women around them. And so their wives and their sisters. And so they noticed what was going on with them emotionally. And so I, I talked to so many more people than ever appeared in this story. So I, I guess I would t- talk to the women, get their sense of, of what was going on, and then go back to the men and say, you know, is it fair to describe it as this was going on with you at the time? And, you know, more, most often they, they said yes. And so I I guess being really being tuned in to, and I think that I absorb a little bit of like of what people are going through something emotional I think I I tend to absorb a little bit of that and feel that myself like empathy and um, it's not always good for me but like when I first got the birth reports the full birth reports back and I saw like the weight of of one of the women and you know what time her contractions started to get um, worse and more painful and and just seeing her whole chart, her prenatal, it, she became so real to me. And uh, I, I, like one night after reading that birth report that came into my email uh, at night, I, I couldn't sleep. I was just thinking about this woman and, and, you know, what she'd gone through over those 24 hours. And, and then that, you know, this life you grow inside you is just taken away and you have no say over it. And, yeah, does that answer the question? I kind of went off on a tangent there. I no. think I just like get really invested and like um in the the hearts of the people that I'm talking to and um yeah. I was just speaking with um the a, a researcher and um author um Jimena Benguechea about um it's her new book is um Listen Like You Mean It and uh uh, my favorite part of her book is towards the end where it, she talks about a uh, recovery and, uh, and listener drain and being like, if you're you know, like, it just sounds like you, like, you know, you're, you're really, you're listening hard and re- asking very personal questions and taking a lot of that on yourself. And that can be very, very draining for any reporter. And I, and I might extend that to you, like to, to what extent might you, suffer being uh, for lack of a better term suffer from listener drain and how do you pull yourself how do you recharge after you know spending time with such material that can really cling to you yeah well i think it's important to be able to go there um, emotionally in order to tell this type of story and so 
Um, what do I do? Well, I, I mean, I, I go exercise, <laughs> I get outside. Yeah. Um, do you run or walk? Yeah, or, yeah. Yeah. I go for a run. I go to Pilates, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, during COVID and I work from home generally, like it's really important for me to get out of the house. Um, so I, I, I try and just, I take a, like, I need, I will need to take a big break from, um, uh, writing for a little while after this, I think, after this story, uh, I write things that are more, um, you know, maybe a story about the, the environment. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Bridge stories that that are, (laughs) yeah, bridge you between the emotional drains. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But this story is also, I feel like it's so close to my heart to, to, because Newfoundland is such a beautiful place as well. And I just, I, I put so much stock in trying to portray it as it is, as this beautiful place. But yeah, there's something backwards that happened there too. You know, you were talking with your friend who's kind of a structure nerd. And I love, um, I love talking structure and getting people's sense on structure. And I, and I think listeners really love to hear, how writers, reporters, memoirs, essayists, how whoever is uh, writing under this genre, how they go about structure, whether you know when they're thinking about it, are they thinking about it early in the process as they're reporting, or are they waiting till they get all their information and then figure out the best way to do it? Uh, so, so what what's your approach to it? And maybe you can overlay your approach to how you structured uh, this the story uh, that you wrote for Atavist. This story is structured a little bit differently than how I first envisioned it. And Sayward helped shepherd it in that direction. But I I guess I always try to start with like a, I feel like structure is intuitive for me. And it's when, if I'm telling somebody about a story, then that's what I start with. I start with what, what is most, ex- I'm most excited about and how I want to set it up. And um, normally it's a scene and that scene is going to lead to something else that is going to help unravel the story. And in this story, I've always felt like I wanted to start in 1962 and it is starting in 1962. Mm-hmm. I, I had it structured a different way in 1962, but then as the story of Rita, um, came out I mean I didn't know any of this when I first started out that yeah she would um have gone through so much leading up to uh, the birth of Clark and so when that came out in the reporting in second or draft I think it was that's when you know Sayward was very struck by her story and so we we put that up top um and then I feel like your last uh, guest, the last out of a story, Phil Ho, did a really good job of this and in his piece. And I really, I really hope I'm so close to this. I can't even tell anymore if it's there, but (laughs) just setting up um, a little bit of tension around you not really knowing whether your, your central characters are, are good or bad and seeing where that goes. And um, I'm not sure if it, I hope it does that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a wonderful, it's, it's a wonderful piece and it's a, 
you know, it, what's nice about it too is that it takes us to a place where, you know, to a you know, to Newfoundland and to Canada, where a lot of at least a lot of us south of the border here, you know, we haven't haven't been there, haven't experienced that. So it not only are you telling this deeply personal, emotive, evocative story of these people, it's uh, it's also very just of a place which takes us takes us there which i think in this in this day and age when we when we're where we can't travel and get out of our own heads half the time it's nice to for a story like yours to transport us to another place and uh, to to put us there on the ground god well i was lucky to be able to go there because Due to COVID, our borders were shut down most of the time, and there was a small window in September where um, we had what um, has we call the Atlantic bubble, and so it's like the Atlantic region of Canada, which is where I live. We were we could travel within it to the four provinces here, and so that's how I was able to get there. And then it closed up when COVID started spreading, and so it, it's it was very. It was a chance in, uh, that I ever got to go to Newfoundland at all last fall. <laughs> Pretty slick, right? Thanks for sticking around and listening. And thanks to Sayward and Lindsay. If you don't already subscribe to The Atavist, consider doing it to support the team that goes into making great pieces of journalism. That's why they list the names of the copy editors, the fact checkers, the designers, the editors, and the writer because it takes a village to raise a long form story. And while you have your wallet out, you might just want to head over to patreon.com slash cnfpod to help keep the lights on here at CNFPod HQ. It's the only way you'll get exclusive access to the audio magazines, more like a literary magazine with uh, personal essays. The next one's going to be coming out in early, well, uh, late June. It's a, it's themed summer, so it's coming out the first day of summer. I have a pile of essays to curate and edit and get into the hands of the writers, and then hopefully we can record those, and I'm going to put them all together for a beautiful little thing that'll k- take you into the summer, into the sun, to the beach maybe. I don't know. I haven't read them yet. And you know that your dollars are doing some serious heavy lifting because, well, for one, you get it, you can get transcripts, you get the subscription to, to the audio magazine, yeah, even some one-on-one coaching. But like the heavy lifting part, your dollars are helping to pay for hosting and tech upgrades. Podcasting is pretty expensive to do, and it takes a ton of time. Let me tell you that because I do it all in house, and I don't outsource it or anything. So. Here we are. And most importantly, part of the money, a good chunk of that money, is going into the pockets of writers who work, whose work I accept for the magazine. So check it out. It's patreon.com slash cnfpod. Shop around. Window shop. Cool stuff. I'm also doing that thing where I give coaching for a written review on Apple Podcasts. So when if you go to Apple Podcasts and you write a written review of the show, email me a screenshot. And I will coach up a piece of your writing of up to 2,000 words. Not too shabby, right? So keep the conversation going on Twitter and Instagram at CNFPod. And head over to brendanomero.com for show notes and to sign. Did my voice just crack? It totally did. Wow. Just roll with it, right? 
head over to brendanomero.com, hey, for show notes and to sign up for the Algorithm Averse monthly newsletter, where I give out reading recommendations, podcast news, links to articles, and enter you into random raffles for all the books I receive. If you're on the list, you're always entered in the raffle. Not bad for a free thing. Once a month, no spam, can't beat it. So what do you say we get on out of here? Stay cool, CNFers. Stay cool forever. See ya. See ya.